and meeting. I've heard about him for some time. Uh, Reverend Jeff Carr has been director of gang reduction and youth development programs for the city of Los Angeles. As deputy mayor, Jeff advances the city's efforts to reduce gang violence, enhances opportunities for youth, and oversees all city gang prevention, intervention, and re-entry programs. We were joking earlier in uh, the office how ironic it is that Jeff, uh, again, director of uh, gang reduction and violence, is visiting us the week the game Assassins is taking place on campus. That is why I withdrew from the Assassins program. I thought it would just be inappropriate for me to carry around a toy gun, uh, much less getting shot by a Nerf pellet uh, in front of our chapel speaker. But he uh, was... uh, Um, gracious and kind and understanding uh, this morning when uh, Robert was trying to justify his um, participation uh, in the game. In 1987, Jeff began a 17-year career with the Brzee Foundation with many significant successes. He was responsible for its overall provision of comprehensive programs for over 3,500 low-income youth and families annually. Jeff more than tripled its revenue. He led its successful $2.7 million capital campaign to build the Brzee Community Center. He created a first-time offender program that provided comprehensive community-based services for juvenile offenders. He and his family lived in Brzee's inner-city neighborhood, reflecting the commitment to contextual ministry. Jeff was raised in the Church of the Nazarene and followed his father's footsteps as an ordained minister. His wife, he and his wife Wendy have two children, Caleb, age 10, and Maggie, age 7. Prior to his current position, Jeff served from 2005 to 2007 as Chief Operating Officer, Chief of Staff for Sojourners Call to Renewal in Washington, D.C., a progressive Christian social justice organization. He managed 50 employees, leading finance, personnel, marketing, and development departments. And just a few weeks ago, it's not even printed on his bio, uh, Jeff received a promotion, and he is now Chief of Staff for the Mayor of Los Angeles, Antonio Villarosa. Will you please welcome Reverend Jeff Carr. Is it on up there? Okay, good. Well, thank you, Corey. Um, It is really good to be here this morning. Um, I actually, you kind of stole my thunder. Thanks a lot. I, um, I actually, yesterday I was here and spent a day visiting uh, folks here in the city of Boston, and uh, at 7.30 this morning, actually, uh, yesterday, this, yesterday morning, uh, part of uh, Commissioner Ed Davis's security detail picked me up in a black SUV and, and uh, ushered me around the city yesterday, and I was thinking it was an opportune time for me to be here with the outbreak of violence that you've had on your campus. And uh, actually, I was really happy this morning. I survived my own assassination attempt. Um, I hid behind Robert Benjamin, and actually, I think he's out of the game now. Um, no, I'm actually, actually, Robert's not out of the game, but I hear he is a stone-cold killer. So you better watch out if he... Uh, that's not true, Robert? You were bragging about your ability to assassinate anyone on campus. So I, I don't know. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. No, it is really good to be here this morning. I was actually here 20 years ago. I was a lot younger then. Um, I don't know if, I was, if I'm any smarter now than I was when I came here before, but it's really good to be back in Boston. Um, and it was great yesterday to, to, as I said, be in the city and, and see how many similarities 
Uh, on the positive side, what's going on here in Boston? Spent a bunch of time in Roxbury yesterday, and there's some people doing some really good um, work around um, anti-violence efforts and trying to really reduce uh, gang violence here in Boston. So I encourage you to get involved with um, a program called Safe Streets that just got launched by the Boston Foundation. And uh, if you have a chance to get involved and read about that, please do. It's really important. I want to just share briefly with you this morning some thoughts uh, about you and your generation, but base that in a great text that won't be unfamiliar to many of you which is Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 1. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You know, like you are sitting now, over 20 years ago, I sat at a Nazarene university in Idaho, Northwest Nazarene University, and sat through many of these kind of chapel experiences, I hope, I'll be better than some of the ones I had to, to endure. But I sat through, and many of the speakers came through and challenged me and my generation to consider what we would do after we left um, college. And many of you are sitting here, and you're in classes, and you're beginning to think about preparation for what you're going to do. You're looking at choices, choices that you face right now, but also choices you will face in the future. From graduate schools to employment from where you will live and to what you will do with your life. And you're making choices that will determine not only the future of your life, but you're making choices that will determine the future of our world in what I believe is both big ways and small. And when I was in, uh, about to graduate from Northwest Nazarene University, one of my professors named Ed Crawford actually spoke at our baccalaureate ceremony and he said something that day that has actually, it was imprinted on my mind and on my heart and has actually been something that at various junctures in my life, I've thought about this statement and it has impacted the decisions that I've made. And this is what he said. He said, the measure of your success as a human being will not be determined by fame or fortune, but whether or not you have leave the world a better place because of how you lived and walked on this earth. The measure of your success as a human being will not be determined by fame or fortune, but whether or not you leave the world a better place because of how you lived and walked on this earth. You know, you, your generation has been dubbed the millennial generation, and researchers have, been, researchers have been studying your habits, your buying patterns, the way you all socialize now with Facebook and Twitter and and 15 other things that I don't even know exist on the internet. And they've been looking at how you view the world. Now, I'm not a social scientist. I'm actually, a, I, I had a, got a philosophy and religion degree. But I've spent a lot of time around young people, around thousands of hours talking to them. Mostly kids who grew up in my inner city neighborhood in Los Angeles. And what I think about this title of millennial generation, I think it is the best title that I could think of for your generation. And in some ways, some social scientist probably came up with this title, and who knows how he came up with it, but I think it's actually prophetic, because I believe that your generation has an opportunity in, to influence history in ways that only come along once in a millennium. If you look back over the, the arc of history, there were circumstances in the world where the situation was ripe for change, 
and there were a group of young people and people at that moment in time who rose to the occasion and stepped up and because of the decisions they made and the way they lived their lives that altered the course of history and today we find ourselves in this sort of postmodern postpartisan globally connected world which is unprecedented in history we have advances in technology and science and commerce. Our understanding of the human mind and body, as well as social science, afford you and your generation opportunities that have never been afforded previous generations. And yet at the same time, we face unprecedented challenges. Like global poverty that kills 30,000 children each day because of the lack of clean drinking water and preventable diseases like malaria. We thought about that 30,000 children each day are dying. You know, you could break that down into the minutes, and almost every time I snap my fingers, some child is dying around the world because of preventable diseases. Not because we don't have the technology and the know-how, but because we don't have the will. An AIDS pandemic that threatens the very future of entire nations or continents like Africa, which is being devastated. And global warming at a pace that threatens the future of our entire ecosystem. I was reading online this morning that actually in the Pacific Northwest, uh, in Puget Sound where I grew up, there's a dead spot where nothing is living in the, in the, in the ocean because they assume it's because of global warming and what we're doing to our ecosystem. Devastation, the likes that we have never seen. I read Tom Friedman's book um, over, over uh, Christmas this year. If you haven't read that, and think about where we're headed. The ecosystem could literally fall apart in our lifetime. And we see global conflict raging because of a clash of civilizations and a lack of understanding that leads to violence, which then leads and begets even more violence and war. But I think what is different now is that we actually have the technology and the know-how and the solutions to most of these problems. I mean, conflict is very real, but you know, if we sat down and we talked to one another, we actually could come up with solutions. If people were reasonable and willing to see the other person's point of view, we could actually come up with conflict resolution and, and lasting peace in different places. We could solve, we could alter the course of the destruction of our ecosystem. We could stop the AIDS pandemic, and we could stop 30,000 children dying every single day. The question is not, do we know how to do that? The question is, and the question for you and your generation will be, whether or not you have the will to confront these challenges and make the necessary personal, you personally, professional and political decisions that will be necessary to alter the course of history. And here is what I believe very simply. The only way this will happen is if young people of faith, like you, will exercise your faith by imagining a world that is fundamentally different than the one we live in now, and then giving your life to make that world become a reality. That's really as simple as it is. Can you imagine, can you use the creative imagination that God has endowed with you with to imagine a world that looks differently than the one we live in right now? then will you make the personal, professional, and political commitments necessary to make that world a reality? That is the choice for you and your generation. 
Now, the passage that I read earlier, Hebrews chapter 11, 1, actually harkens back to a time that wasn't so different than the time we live in right now. It was written in about 70 A.D. And it was actually written in another great time of transition in our history. Jesus had walked the earth. He had been crucified, resurrected, and the church then had actually been born in Jerusalem, the early church, and they were facing tremendous persecution. They found themselves in a city and a culture where things were changing very quickly. And actually the writer is, begins to link back the history of the Jewish people, but he puts on that a claim about this one they called Jesus. And he said that Jesus had ushered in a new era as the high priest, one that was marked by the paradoxical supposition that power is gained through suffering and service, not through war, not through might. They, if you think about the disciples and you look at some of the New Testament writings, I mean, it's hard to not, it's easy to understand how they thought Jesus was going to usher in a new kingdom. He was going to overthrow the Roman government and establish a powerful kingdom. And suddenly, Jesus is crucified. It must have absolutely blown their worldview of what they thought was going to happen with the Messiah. And they find themselves in this context. And the writer is talking to a Jewish audience and he hearkens them back to the great history of the Jewish people. And if you read the entire chapter 11, it reads almost like an Old Testament Hall of Fame. I mean, the, the writer is, I didn't read the whole story, you can read it later this afternoon, but the, the writer recalls the story of Abraham and Sarah bearing a child of promise in Isaac and Abraham's obedience in offering Isaac up as a sacrifice. You remember that Sarah was in her 90s and, and the Lord visits her in a vision, God visits, uh, an angel visits her in a vision and says, you're going to be pregnant. She laughs out loud, okay? That's a pretty common thing if you're 90 and an angel comes and says you're going to have a baby. This is the baby of promise. And as soon as Isaac is born, uh, born, God asks Abraham to take Isaac and to lay him on an altar and to sacrifice his child. And Abraham, out of faith, does that. And God provides a ram in the bush and saves Isaac. We're reminded, the, the, the writer reminds us of the story of Moses and the faith of his parents in defying the edict of Pharaoh to kill every infant male child that was born. Can you imagine what it would have been like you have this little baby boy and he's beautiful and you hide him because you know there's an edict to kill him and then you put him in a basket and he floats down the river and suddenly he ends up in Pharaoh's court and he's raised there by Pharaoh. And then we see the faith of that child, Moses, who turned his back on the privilege and power afforded him by being raised in the house of Pharaoh, which led to the freedom of an entire people from the bondage of slavery. The writer continues by recalling the story of Joshua and the walls of Jericho and the faithfulness of God in overthrowing a much more powerful nation. Those walls where this small little army marches around for seven days and prays and God answers their prayer. How great is it that God used a prostitute, Rahab, who welcomed the spies in peace and because of her faithfulness saved her people would we have the creative imagination to, begin to believe that God could use a prostitute today to establish and to promote his kingdom? But beyond what the writer here in Hebrews says, we have examples of that history in our 
own time in the past. If you look back in the 1800s, just a couple years ago, we celebrated the abolition of slavery. And William Wilberforce, who in Great Britain was a Christian man who was in the parliament, he was in politics. Every single year for 30 years, William Wilberforce introduced a motion to abolish slavery in the British Empire. And for 30 straight years, he was voted down. But he was a part of this Christian community of abolitionists who believed that God had a vision for a different world, one where people of all color and race and creed were created equal in the image of God and they deserved to be treated such. And for 30 straight years, he introduced a motion to abolish slavery. And finally, because of his persistence and his commitment to his faith, slavery was abolished in the British Empire. And do you know that two days later, William Wilberforce died? His mission had been completed. We saw this kind of vision in the late 1800s in Los Angeles when a Methodist minister named Phineas F. Brzee left the Methodist church, this prestigious church in Los Angeles, and he started a, a little storefront church in Skid Row called the Church of the Nazarene. Do you all know why we call it the Church of the Nazarene and not the Nazarene Church? Because Brzee and the early church leaders had a vision for the kind of church that they believed God called them to. It was the Church of the Nazarene, which was, if you look back in the history with all the prophetic voices about where the Messiah was going to come from, the Messiah was going to come from a place where the despised, the outcast came from, which was Nazareth. There was no question in Jesus' time that Nazareth was, it was like the ghetto of Palestine. And Brzee and the early church leaders in the Church of the Nazarene said, we want to be called the Church of the Nazarene, the Church of the Despised, of the Outcasts, of the Poor, of those who are the marginalized in our society. And that was the mission and the vision of our early church. Oh, wouldn't it be great if that was the kind of church we were today? If we were the place where people who lived on the margins of our society were so drawn because of our commitment and our love of Christ that they came from the highways and the byways because there were a group of people who offered them grace and love and forgiveness and acceptance. And we saw evidence of this kind of faith and hope in 1994. I remember watching it in on television, on C CNN, in South Africa, when an Anglican priest named Desmond Tutu and a Methodist layman, most people don't know this, and a Methodist layman who spent 27 years locked up in jail named Nelson Mandela, led a struggle that finally overthrew the apartheid government of South Africa. My question to you all this morning is not, is it possible to change the arc of history and the course of history, but my question for you this morning is what kind of story will be told by future generations about the transformational change that you accomplished? When we look back a hundred years from now, will people look back and say that your generation altered the course of history, that we were headed this direction and all the things that I described earlier? And because there was a small band of people, maybe one or two, who mobilized thousands of people that suddenly the arc of history changed. Will they say that about your generation? Or will they just look back and say they were just a caretaker of the present and they never did anything to change that? Now, to be people who will change the course of history, it requires a fundamental choice on your part. It requires the choice 
a choice between hope and cynicism. Now I want to tell you, in this world, it is very easy to be cynical. And I found myself in the last two and a half years since I accepted the challenge in Los Angeles to try and uh, end gang violence. Just a little task, since we have 40,000 gang members in the city of Los Angeles and 400 gangs. How big is Quincy? Not 40,000, I don't think. So imagine the entire city of Quincy and another, another one full of gang members. And the mayor asked me to come fix that problem. And I got to tell you, in the last two and a half years, until a few weeks ago, in the face of that kind of violence. It's easy. Let me tell you, it's easy to get cynical. In the face of 30,000 children dying each day, if you're in a country like Africa where people are being devastated by the pandemic of AIDS, it's easy to become cynical. And you know what? Cynics, people who are professional cynics, when you get out in the world and you're working, you're going to find a lot of people that are cynical. And we need cynics because you know what? They sort of are rooted in reality. They're pragmatic. They look at the world and see it the way it is. And they reflect on that and then sometimes they become cynical. But let me tell you this morning that you have a choice when you get out of this place to either be a member of the cynics or to choose hope. You can choose cynicism and let that consume you and help you believe that nothing can change or you can choose hope. And you can see the world not the way it is. But you can imagine the world the way God intended for it to be. And then what you can do is you can commit your life to that. You can live your life in such a way that you hold on to hope, that you believe in hope, and then you imagine that world differently. And then you work 
for a world that looks like that. And let me tell you, if we had an army of young people, a generation like yours, who chose hope over cynicism, I believe with all my heart that you will change the course of history. You will change the course of history. It's in your grasp to do that. And if young people who know the one we call Jesus, who has given us an infinite hope beyond the world that we live in, if you are not hopeful, if you don't have a hopeful vision for the future, then who is going to have it? And if you don't dedicate your lives to a mission that is bigger than yourselves, then who is going to dedicate themselves to that mission? My old boss, Jim Wallace, the founder of Sojourners, says it this way. And translate this passage of Scripture this. He says, Hope unbelieved, hope unbelieved is always considered nonsense. But hope believed is history in the process of being changed. Hope unbelieved is always considered nonsense. But hope believed is history in the process of being changed. As you continue your studies here, some of you are beginning those studies. Prepare yourself. Learn everything you can. Take advantage of all of the information that we have now about so many different things in our world. Study hard. Gain that knowledge. But as you leave this place, I challenge you to dedicate yourselves, not just to your faith, but to a vision for what the world could be. Because the world literally is dying for a generation of young people like yourselves who will alter the course of history. My prayer for you is that God will give you the perseverance and the intestinal fortitude and most importantly the faith to choose hope over cynicism. Let us pray. Gracious God, on this Friday morning as we prepare for a, a great three-day weekend, Lord, we just pause for a moment and we acknowledge the good news of the grace of your Son, Jesus, that you have freely given to us. God, that that grace gets a hold of us and it changes us and transforms us and makes us into the people that you have called us to be. And God, as I think about the many places that I visited yesterday here in Boston that are so in need of light and salt, God, I, may, I pray that the students here at Eastern Nazarene College would actually go out into that world while they're here, God. But as they prepare for the future, Lord, I pray that you would give them a vision for seeing our world in a different way. God, we thank you that your vision is bigger than ourselves. And that, God, you invite us into a vision and to a mission that will bring us fulfillment and lasting peace. Dismiss us, Lord, this day with your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace. Have a great weekend.